Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. If you've been following the Traveler, you know there's a lot going on across the national park system. This past week, we told you how the North Cascades Institute managed its summer youth field program with very little time in the field. Kim O'Connell visited Great Smoky Mountains National Park to report on an effort to locate the graves of military veterans in the park, even those dating to the Revolutionary War, and told you about work to improve access to Grove of Titans at Redwood National and State Parks. We also looked at the possibility that the incoming Biden administration would restore the original boundaries of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments in Utah. You can find those and other news about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we visit with Esty Rivera, Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Conservancy, to discuss the damage wildfires inflicted on Rocky Mountain National Park and the role the Conservancy is taking in helping park staff rehabilitate areas impacted by the fires and interpret the intense fire season. And we visit with Kim Hecox, a former park ranger turned writer and photographer at Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in Alaska. Hecox's book, The Only Kayak, was reissued this year, 15 years after it first appeared. He discusses the book and how climate change and visitors are altering Glacier Bay and other national parks in Alaska. Rocky Mountain National Park this fall experienced its worst year on record for wildfires. Between them, the East Troublesome and Cameron Peak fires burned about 30,000 acres of forest in the park. Destroyed by the flames was the Grand Lake Entrance Station and other structures on the western side of the park. Esty Rivera, Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Conservancy, joins us to discuss the damage and the role the Conservancy is taking in helping park staff rehabilitate areas impacted by the fires. Welcome to The Traveler, Esty. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So right off the bat, um, the Conservancy long has provided educational and interpretive materials for Rocky Mountain National Park. Are you working on some new materials and programming specific to the wildfires in the park? Yes, absolutely. So actually, before the fire started, one of our big projects for uh, 2020 and coming into 2021 has been the rehabilitation of the Shadow Mountain Fire Lookout. So we've just funded a large historic studies assessment there. So that's, if you look at, you know, the books of the iconic fire towers of the National Park, that's it. I mean, that is one of the most iconic structures. And the, it hasn't been accessible to the for a very long time because of structural issues and it hasn't been usable for fire staff for the same reason. So even before this fire season, we had started a project where our hope is that we can use that really as this hub for interpretive programming about the history of wildfire in the park um, and management of wildfire in the park. And then peripherally also that fire staff in the future might be able to actually use it as an active fire lookout in the park. Um, when there's an active incident going on or when there are times, you know, like the Grand Lake fireworks show when that happens, where they really want to be diligent and watch. So certainly we'd like to incorporate interpretive messaging into that in the long term. And then the other project that we're just about to undertake 
is a complete remodel of the Kawanichi Visitor Center. And so if you go to the Kawanichi, you can't go to the Kawanichi Visitor Center right now. Um, it's burned to a crisp around the Kawanichi Visitor Center right now. It's incredible that that structure was spared and kudos to the staff. You may have seen uh, the Grand Lake entrance stations themselves are still standing, but the kiosk has burned to the ground. Wow. Sorry, the office. Sorry, the office has burned to the ground. And, that, and that's on the western side of the park. Yes, yes, on the western entrance. Um, so huge, you know, structural damage over there. So certainly that's something as we think about it, what are the interpretive themes? Visitors are going to see the impacts of the fire, you know, when they walk in the park for years to come. Um, I've seen on some of the trails, you know, you can see where there are water bars that our trail crews have built over the years that are just cinders. Um, so where there's going to be trail erosion impacts. Uh, most of those trails over there are not passable at all due to tree fall and other burned area issues. So there's no way that, you know, we can't talk about it in our interpretive messaging and in the park's interpretive messaging going forward because the public is going to see it and, and smell it Yeah, with all of their senses for decades to come. Yeah. Now, um, for folks who aren't uh, that familiar with Rocky Mountain, where where is the Shadow Mountain Lookout, if you can orient folks? You can see it. Um, you look down upon Grand Lake. Um, so you can see the actual Grand Lake and the town of Grand Lake itself from the Shadow Mountain Lookout. So it's on the uh, western side of the Continental Divide. And has the park uh, actively been using it as a fire lookout, or is it just in a, in a state of uh, um, I believe. I believe the last time they used it as an active fire lookout was in 2014. So, you know, not in the historic past, in the more recent modern past, but it's just that, and the conservancy over the years has done, some, you know, various repairs to the facility, but the stairs at this point are just, you know, not passable or safe for humans in any way. Um, but it really is, it's also a destination hike. I mean, it's a beautiful giant stone fire lookout. Um, so we're really happy that it wasn't damaged in this fire as well. Um, but when you think about a focal point to be able to tell the story of just, you know, this the two largest wildfires in Colorado history happening simultaneously in the same season, um, and the story of what happened in this, this fire, even the, um, you know, the East Troublesome fire, the fact that it popped the Continental Divide, I think, shocked a lot of very long-term uh, career fire staff as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I was actually on the ground in Yellowstone back in 1988, working for the Associated Press and reporting on the fires then. And I know um, I spent a couple rotations through the park, as it were, that summer. And the, the first visit I had was, oh my God, this place is burning down. It's an incredible event that um, how's Yellowstone ever going to recover? And then later in the summer, um, in August, when I was back there, um, you could already see some of the vegetation coming back, the fireweed re-sprouting. And of course, in, in the years since, um, the lodgepole came back and, and just incredible waves of, of trees. And so... I'm sure a lot of uh, people who read about the fires in Rocky Mountain this year and, and saw them on TV are, are just devastated by the destruction that the fires gave to the park. And, and while certainly climate change is increasing the um, severity and the ferocity of some of these wildfires and changing the fire season in ways that um, we're not familiar with, at the same time, there's a rebirth going on. And, and I guess it falls to the conservancy in, in large part to, to try and... Um, Explain what's going on to the, the visiting public. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't want to undercut it. You know, fires are always horribly devastating to the human communities around the park. And we've certainly seen that, particularly on the west side. But you're right, you know, it's not always the worst thing from an ecological standpoint. Um, we have a few large uh, ecological landscape level ecological restoration projects that I don't have a full understanding of how this is going to impact them yet. So uh, last year we funded some, some faux beaver dams, um, so recreated beaver dams um, in partnership with a handful of other entities. So if you create a fake beaver dam, the water will flow differently over the landscape and change the vegetation over time. Right the day before the evacuation, I got news from one of the park researchers that a beaver had moved into one of the fake beaver dams, which is really just uh, the icing on the cake. We knew that was a possibility, um, but one had actually moved in and started doing their own home modifications. Um, so when we think about those sorts of projects, I don't, you know, have any of our faux beaver dams burned down or been damaged through this process? I don't know, thinking about where we pick those restoration projects up. And then we also have, we had planned prior to the fire, and I believe we'll still go forward, although it's going to look very different on the ground, is a large-scale restoration of some of the watersheds on the west side as well. Particularly, you know, one of the longer-term impacts here is going to be certainly around the watershed from the, you know, the Colorado River water flows, which, you know, is where a massive portion of, you know, people in the western United States, where they get their water from. Sure. Thinking about the um, the impacts of the fire on that as well is pretty significant. You mentioned faux beaver dams and, and the return of beavers to some of those areas in the park. Colorado voters just last week told state officials they want to see wolves return to the the, the state of Colorado. Um, and I guess um, if that comes to be that uh, some of those wolves um, might find their way to Rocky Mountain. And um, that's got to be an interesting story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there have been a few that have already organically moved into the state over the last year. So, you know, to what extent that has acclimated the public to this concept or not, isn't quite sure. There, I think there was two or three that moved in from Wyoming over the last year. And I'm, you know, not a wolf biologist, but I do know, you know, Rocky is not this the scale of ecosystem and, you know, the magnitude of connected landscapes that we have in the greater Yellowstone area, when you look at Yellowstone and the Tetons and all of the national forests, all things considered, it's, it's the third most visited national park in the country. It's one of the smaller parks um, when you think about its actual footprint. Yeah, I think people have a hard time getting getting their heads around that when you talk about Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Rocky Mountain range, of course, ranges, you know, multiple states and is massive. And then you see these towering peaks like Long's Peak. But the actual perimeter of the park um, is not a huge footprint here in Rocky. So, you know, thinking about the range and territory. Um, but my understanding is, you know, that you know, creatures, of course, move around. Sure. We see that with, with the moose were originally reintroduced, um, not reintroduced, introduced. Um, they're not a native species in southern Colorado and, of course, are very increasingly predominantly um, spotted in here, even in Estes Park now. At this point, they've crossed over the divide. So it's certainly predictable that, you know, wolves will move around the state and we shall we shall see how that goes. 
be an interesting dynamic. Yeah, now, but I, I certainly think it's a, you know, it's a regardless of, you know, exactly what it looks like on the ground. I think it's a good omen for, you know, public sentiment changing as they think about, you know, the creatures that are native to, you know, the landscape of this greater region. Now, I know um, you had to um, cancel your uh, field institute classes in the park this year because of COVID-19. Uh, any decision made yet regarding uh, going back into the field next year, or is it just too early with the, the current situation? It's still a bit too early. We're seeing, you know, very high cases again in Colorado, um, moving Boulder County and Larimer County have moved into the higher um, levels of caution and restriction. So it's a little early to tell, um, but certainly our plan is to bring that program back at some point. It's just really been what we've seen in terms of customer demand, people don't want to be in tour buses watching elk together with 15 strangers. It's a safety issue. Um, and it's also, you know, just so many unpredictable components. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I know it's, it's early yet. Um, have you, um, thought about a fundraising campaign to address some of the impacts of the fires? And, and if so, is there somewhere folks can go to donate to it? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for asking. We do on our website, uh, rmconservancy.org, we have a Rocky Mountain National Park Fire Relief Fund. Um, and so the park at this point is starting the early stages of, you know, the burned area emergency rehab teams and structural assessments and all of those. So we don't know exactly, you know, what specific projects for fire we're going to work on. But we've all agreed, you know, it's going to be decades of recovery. This isn't the sort of thing that, you know, we can send in a crew and, you know, move some burnt logs aside. It's going to be a careful calculation of which structures need to be rebuilt that have been burned down. Um, park housing in some cases, that's a project the Conservancy's gotten involved in in recent years, um, supporting the need for park housing. Some of the park seasonal housing burned down. Um, so thinking about, you know, how does that impact the park's long-term operation for them bringing staff in to even do some of these repairs going forward? So I don't have a very specific project, um, but our goal is certainly to help the park and, you know, work lockstep with them to figure out what their needs are so that visitors, you know, can get back to enjoying the park. Right now, a huge portion of the park is still closed because those assessments are ongoing. And the fire is still active. Um, there's a, you know, a couple snowflakes falling outside my window right now, um, but we're still not totally out of the woods with this. This is still an active fire, largely contained, um, but still active. So the park is certainly still managing that aspect of it, even before they can think about what next and recovery. So I would encourage people if they want, um, we would appreciate donations, um, either for the Shadow Mountain Fire Lookout for those long-term interpretive projects, like I mentioned, or uh, generally fire recovery and relief in the park. Okay. Both ecological and structural. Okay, that's great to hear. Please uh, keep us um, uh, up to date with uh, what programs you're, you're moving forward with or what help you need, and we'll pass it on to our readers and listeners. Okay, thank you. All right, that's Esty Rivera, the Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Conservancy at Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Thank you very much, Esty. Thanks. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, 
please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Kim Heacox is a writer and photographer based in Gustavus, Alaska, the gateway to Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. That's where in a previous life he was a ranger for the Park Service. That career, which dates to the 1970s, had surrounded him with a wilderness realm that relatively few have visited or had the time to truly appreciate. Working in Glacier Bay and traveling throughout Alaska to capture its rawness with his cameras also gave Heacox ample time not only to marvel in that wildness, but to contemplate change that slowly was coming to Alaska and its national parks. We've invited Kim to join us to share his perceptions. Welcome to The Traveler, Kim. Thank you, Kurt. Good to be here. Your book, um, The Only Kayak, has been re-released this year as a 15th anniversary edition. Congratulations. It fortunately found its way to my mailbox, and uh, I've really been enjoying it as it's revived memories of a trip my wife and I took to Glacier Bay back in 2011. Listeners who are curious about the book can find a review of it on The Traveler. Now, Kim, early on in the book, you talk about a kayak trip that you and your fellow park ranger, Richard Steele, took in the bay, and how you were able to immerse yourself in the wilderness of Glacier Bay. Not too many pages later, you're on one of the cruise ships that visits Glacier Bay and wondering about how disconnected the passengers have become with nature. Is that a fair interpretation? And if so, why? What, what were you getting at? Well, yes, it's true. I arrived in Glacier Bay in 1979. It was then Glacier Bay National Monument. I was in my mid-20s, new to Alaska, went on a kayak trip with Richard Steele. He's from Indiana. And he had been in the Everglades. I had come up to Alaska from Death Valley. Hmm. So we're in this brand new world of tidewater glaciers and coastal brown bears and stellar sea lions and tufted puffins. And we took a kayak trip together. And we're lucky we, we came out of it okay. We were cold and wet immediately and not very well prepared for it. Was, it was mid-May, but maybe it was 39 degrees a steady rain, and a cold five to 10 knot wind blowing off the Tidewater Glaciers. But we were so exuberant with being young and alive in wild country. It was just the furnace of our passion for wildness that kept us going. 
So we completed the kayak trip, got back to uh, Monument headquarters, and within a couple weeks, we find ourselves as interpretive rangers on cruise ships coming into the bay, two a day, these floating cities. I, I couldn't believe it to, to, to step onto this cruise ship with 1,800 passengers and interpret for them their national park. And what's cool about it, Kurt, from then until now, is their day in Glacier Bay on that one-week cruise in the inside passage of Alaska from Vancouver, British Columbia, up to Alaska and back to British Columbia. That was a holy day or a spiritual day, like a day in church. They closed down the, the casino, the gambling machines, the art auctions, the napkin folding contests. There were no competing events. Everybody was encouraged to get out on deck and enjoy their national park. So it's easy for me as somebody who slept on the ground and really been there to be critical of these people finding a, a folded mint on their pillow every night when they go into their stateroom and going down to the chocolate buffet every night at midnight and passing through their national park in luxury. So it's really easy to make fun of that. And I do a little bit. I have I have fun of it I, with it rather than making fun of it. But toward the end of the day, I find an architect who, as I'm packing up to leave, he says to me, you live here. And I say, yes, I do. And he says, oh, I can't believe that, that you get to live here as a ranger. He said, I should have done what you've done. I'm an architect in Atlanta. And I, I said, yeah, oh, an architect. I always wanted to maybe be an architect. And I said, glaciers are sort of the architect of this landscape, don't you think? And he says, yes. Good point. Not just the architects, they're also the finished carpenter. How uh, They've shaped it all right down to the most careful detail. And I said, oh, I love that. They're not only an architect, but the glaciers are a finished carpenter. Can I use that? I said to him in my writing, I'm, I'm a, an aspiring writer. And he said, of course. Uh, he said, I'm really glad I met you and that I got to come up here. Now I can go back to Atlanta and let the cancer take me. He was dying. And I realized at that moment, don't make fun of anybody. Have fun with a situation. And and I mean, I love to write humor. I'm inspired by Mark Twain and Edward Abbey and Kurt Vonnegut, Charles Bukowski. But it's there's a there's a fine line to it, uh, making fun of other people's expense. So I found that people coming to a national park on a cruise ship. They might be at a, on a completely different part of the scale of their, their relationship with wildness than I am. But for them to have 30 minutes out on deck facing a tidewater glacier a quarter mile away, it's 250 feet high and a mile across, just this wall of ice dropping columns of ice into the sea, that's going to move them. They will slide over and their appreciation for these places in their own way. It's, they're not never going to sleep on the ground. They're never gonna pitch a tent or get in a sea kayak. But I realized then that they too are on their own wild journey and, uh, of discovery and adventure and discovering really that national parks aren't places, they're ideas. And that idea is slowly dawning on them for that one magical day. All the other days in Southeast Alaska, Ketchikan, Juneau, 
Skagway, the ship is stopping at these small towns filled with gift shops, jewelry stores, t-shirt shops where they can walk the streets and shop. But when they have their one day in Glacier Bay, that's the day they've looked forward to the entire trip. It's powerful. Is it a um, epiphany that sticks with them or once they leave Glacier Bay, does that drift away? Both. For some people, I think it drifts away. For other people, I think it's an epiphany. I wish I could know what the percentages were. Actually, sociologists with different universities like Stanford and the University of Washington in years past have come up to the park and researchers go on the cruise ships for the day with the rangers and interview passengers on the ships. Try to find out how profound this experience is for them. Will this stay with you? Will this color the way you see the world, the way you raise your kids, the way you vote? Any outcomes? The answers are mixed, as you would expect, right? Yeah. Uh, some people are, yeah, this is, this is nice. No, nah, I don't, I don't, no, nope, I'm, but other people are like, yes, the, the answers vary. Yeah. Yeah. No, one of the, one of the sections stood out about um, when you're on the cruise ship with Richard and, uh, and Melanie, and and they they spot a kayaker out on the bay, and they're just astounded. Some of them were just astounded that somebody would do that. Yes, they they wonder if the people are being penalized because they look out there. And it's <laughs> kind of a rainy day and a windy day, and they wonder why would the people put themselves through that. And you try to explain to them that that's one of the beauties of national parks, and especially Glacier Bay with the ability to accommodate a lone kayaker or a cruise ship filled with 2,000 people. And it works. And and sure, you do talk about uh, that people need to have, have the opportunity to go into wildness like that, to, to test themselves. Heaven forbid we should live the unexamined life, right? Like Socrates said. So you find out a lot about yourself. You just say to the people on the ship, they're out there finding out who they are, what yeah. they're made of. Here we are, the 21st century. Um, Many these days point to the wonders of technology and how it can actually enhance our trips into national parks. 15 years ago, when you were working on The Only Kayak, you wondered whether technology would package wilderness and make it predictable. Has that come to be? I think in part it has, yes. Um, I think it's dangerous. I, I, I think... Now you go into Bartlett Cove, Glacier Bay, and at the southern end of the bay where park headquarters is, and there's a lodge and there's a visitor information station. And so many people are sitting there on the picnic benches, just pulled into their smartphones, not looking around. A chickadee, a a chestnut-backed chickadee might land on the hand railing right next to them and they don't even see it. Uh They're just pulled into their, their phones or they're talking by phone. You climb a mountain midway up the bay and get to the top and you find that there's a repeater station up there where with a helicopter landing pad so it can be serviced. Right. So, yeah, that that worries me that and it has creeped in. Uh, and so, yes, I think it's of concern um, that learning to do without these things um, take a good book. Yeah, and also technology, um, as wonderful as it can be, can can get us in trouble. I know um, here in Utah, the um, 
technological improvements in, in backcountry ski gear has led people to overski their abilities and get stuck in the backcountry. Um, there's the, um, the the spot devices and the other um, the other devices that that allow you to summon rescue wherever you may be, and so people might push their limits of comfortability and, and get into problem. And so you've got the two things there. You've got the one where you lose touch with nature because you're so focused on that device in your hand and the other situation where all of a sudden you could be in serious danger because you relied too much on technology. Right. I mean, I'm not going to say that the, the, the early mariners shouldn't have had their sextants so they could know position north and south or their chronometers, positions east and west, right? But they didn't spend all day looking at them um, or a, a big piece of the day. I think somewhere in the only kayak, Kurt, I mentioned that I'm out there with Richard and we're just watching the Tidewater Glacier and we didn't know where we were going to camp. We didn't know what was around really the next corner. We had a a USGS topographic map with wasn't very detailed, but I think at one point I write in the only kayak about guidebooks. Don't tell me where the next good camping spot is and I will not sing for you the song of the hermit thrush. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I like, we liked the discovery of, Hey, look at that. That looks like a good place to camp. Let's give it a try. Right. Yeah. And it was a life changing experience. Well, I have to ask, was, was that your first, kayaking experience surely you you'd been in a boat before i was raised in spokane washington a very little time in a boat in a skiff fishing with my dad for lake bass i'd never been in a sea kayak before you know growing up in spokane washington going over to seattle was exotic for me in the in the 1960s i mean you know spokane was you know bing crosby and and White Christmas, whereas Seattle was Jimi Hendrix and Purple Haze, right? Just Seattle was exotic and it was the ocean. It was a space needle. But I never got in a small sea kayak until I was 26 years old in Glacier Bay. And it was intense country. It was cold and wet and icy. And we did fine. We did okay. And it changed my life. It sounds like an incredible adventure. You know, in the book, you also shared John Muir's concern that profiteers would descend on the national parks. You write that, no wonder national parks and national forests, monuments, and wildlife refuges are under siege. They belong to everyone and to no one. Islands of socialism in a sea of capitalism. They wash away in the pounding waves of profit becoming our profit. With each new demand for access and economic growth made in the absence of any deep regard for the land. Has the siege, as you put it, gotten worse since the first edition of the Only Kayak 15 years ago? A little worse. The ships are larger. Uh, Early on, the Park Service instituted quotas in the bay and river quotas for the large river, like the Asek Tachinshini rivers. And those quotas got set in stone and they've stayed that way. Only two ships per day, only five tour boats per day, only 25 private vessels and 2000 kayakers through the course of the summer. And what's changed is the character of the vessels themselves. The cruise ships now hold tremendous numbers of people. Um, you know, I think up to before COVID, but up to 4,000 passengers and maybe 1,500 crew. Wow. But none of them disembark in the park, 
right? They come into the park and they go out of the park and they're gone. Two ships a day and five tour boats. Um, and the tour boats have from 50 to 100, 120 people on on board. So really, uh, it's it's not gotten that much worse compared to other parks, I believe, down south or even to Denali, which is Denali National Park is the Yellowstone of Alaska, right? It's it's the premier park in Alaska. There's just more buses on the road, more people in the backcountry. Uh, the, the pressures there, I believe, have, have been worse than they have been in Glacier Bay. And then other parks in Alaska, Gates of the Arctic National Park doesn't even get more than 2,000 visitors in a year, right? Yeah. So it's not, a, it's not a problem. Katmai right. is manageable, yeah. Lake Clark, I'm sure. Lake Clark, uh, the, the, the deal with Lake Clark and many of these parks is the air traffic coming in and out, the small plane traffic, so the noise, that has a lot to do with it. The coming and going, the daily whine of airplanes, always coming and going uh, in and out of the parks, the Twin Lakes or what have you. But really, visitation, many of these parks is is minimal. The big ones are Denali and Glacier Bay. And Glacier Bay is largely contained. It's these large ships and tour boats coming in and out with nobody setting foot on the ground. A single kayaker in the bay for a day on any given Tuesday that kayaker paddling around in the bay can disrupt more seabirds and harbor seals than will a, a cruise ship with 4,000 people on it. Because hmm. the cruise ship is traveling mid-channel up to the glacier and back. All the birds are over on the sh near shore islands and islets where they nest and breed and they're all there. And the, the cruise ship may not displace a single bird in an entire day. Hmm. Whereas a kayaker could displace hundreds. And yeah. I need, as a, as, as a user of the park, I need to acknowledge that, right? And say that that's what I have witnessed and that's what I've experienced. Yeah. I've heard much the same thing in, in Yellowstone in winter that um, a cross-country skier will disturb the bison more than uh, snowmobiles going by on the road because the cross-country skier goes off the road and perhaps ventures closer to the herd. We're talking today with Kim Hecox, a former Park Service ranger at Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in Alaska and now a successful author and photographer. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. 
Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Okay, we're back with Kim Hecox, who lives in Gustavus, uh, the gateway town to Glacier Bay National Park in Alaska. 2020 has been extremely stressful and, and a concerning year due to the Corona's pandemic, for sure, uh, not to mention the presidential election. But, but for you and Gustavus and Glacier Bay National Park, it must have been like going back in time a bit, as cruise ships, I don't believe, visited the park this summer because of the pandemic. How was life there this summer? Life in Glacier Bay this summer was quiet. No cruise ships, no tour boats, not many people arriving as independent travelers. Either three-fourths of the lodges in town were shut down. And because it was so quiet, people who live here took advantage of it and went camping and kayaking in the park and marveled at the dawn chorus of birds at 2.30 in the morning in late May. Uh, so beautifully quiet. The soundscape in Glacier Bay is stunning because of the water. Everything echoes across and over the water. You can hear two gulls chattering softly to each other a half a mile away when they're when, on a still windless morning hmm. um, and you're in your kayak, not paddling. You, the, the smallest of sounds just carry beautifully over the water. Whereas if you have the day boat, the, the, the large, loud day boat that leaves Bartlett Cove and Glacier Bay every day and goes up to the glaciers and back and takes 50 to 120 people per day who are staying at Glacier Bay Lodge, that's a loud boat. It comes around the corner at Lester Point in the lower bay, and somebody 40 miles up the bay at Plinkett Point can hear it. Wow. Um, so it just carries over the water. So this summer was remarkable in that it was so quiet, and the researchers at the park, the people that work in resource management, took huge advantage to gather tremendous amounts of data above and below the water, mostly soundscape data. We had at least eight new humpback whale mother calf pairs in the bay this summer feeding you know they spend their winters in hawaii and then make the 3200 mile journey right. to alaska to just gorge on food they eat out a full-grown humpback whale will eat roughly a half a ton to three-fourths of a ton of forage fish per day all day per day every day all summer long in southeast alaska so it was wonderful in that regard to get data uh, free of industrial sounds. Yeah, yeah. Were the number of whales that used the bay up this summer? Or is it about yes, average? they were. The number of whales that, yes, they were. They went, they've been down for many years. Uh, we've had the North Pacific Ocean has been uh, disturbingly warm. It's the blob. They call it the blob. So there was uh, a large area of unusually warm water in the North Pacific. And we think we might've lost some whales because of that. But then in 2019 and in 2020, their, their numbers came back up and that's good. That, that was very encouraging, but we're watching carefully the status of the whales and the seabirds, especially uh, given that the ocean is warming and it's becoming more acidic as well. The North Pacific ocean is 30% more acidic than it was. Uh, well, back in, you know, 1900 or what have you, but in the pre-industrial times, it's 
30% more acidic than it was. And we know all of this from ocean sediments. It's easy to read. It's easy to measure. The science yeah. is irrefutable. Yeah. Um, can, can you put a number on uh, the, the number of whales that utilize Glacier Bay every, every summer? Oh, I think it might be 30 to 40, something like that. In and out, some all, some all summer. Uh, some moving in and out of the bay. Uh, it's remarkable, Kurt. There's on any given day, the average tides. We have two high tides and two low tides per day. Roughly a cubic mile of water floods into and out of Glacier Bay each day. So this tremendous amount of water moving in and out of the bay, carrying, bringing all these nutrients and such. So the, some whales move with those tides. They'll go out of the bay into Icy Strait or down to Frederick Sound and come back to the bay later in the summer. So, yeah, 30 to 40. Pretty, pretty phenomenal, having that in your backyard. Now It is. It's, it's very alive. The bay is extremely alive. It's a coming back to life place that was all under a glacier. There was no glacier bay 300 years ago. So it's a land of rebirth with all this explosion of life going on. It's, it's inspiring. Absolutely. In fact, that's where I was going. Um, the landscape of Glacier Bay long has been impacted by a warming climate. I mean, all you have to do is look at how many of its tidewater glaciers have retreated or read John Muir's accounts of visiting Glacier Bay back in 1879. Now, while those retreats have been at play in play for more than a century, what have you noticed in terms of climate change since you first arrived in Alaska in 1979? Many things, many small things that start to add up to something really big and frightening. But it creeps up on you. It's um, my nephew came up from Seattle the summer of 2019, and we went up on the day boat to the Tidewater Glacier. I wanted to show him around. He's, he's 20 years old. And it was on that, it was in early July. It was one of those days when Anchorage, Alaska hit 90 degrees Fahrenheit. The previous record temperature ever set in Anchorage had been 85 degrees. And then for a couple of days in early July, 2019, Anchorage hit 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And on one of those same days, I took my nephew Tanner up on the day boat with, you know, there were 80 other people on board. And we went to the Marjorie Glacier, which is a 21 mile long glacier coming down out of the Fairweather Range all the way down to the ocean where it reaches the ocean as a tidewater glacier with a vertical face. And I felt a warm wind off the glacier hmm. and I couldn't believe it. So the, the glaciers are disintegrating. They're retreating back. There'll be a time, I don't know when, but there'll be a time when we have no more tidewater glaciers in Glacier Bay, probably. So no more floating ice. So no more birthing areas for harbor seals because they give birth to their pups on floating ice off the face of the glaciers. So that's happening, of course. Glaciers are a remarkable indicator for climate change, but lots of other smaller things too, just um, methane up in the muskeg and methane leaks in the muskeg on the lakes and the ponds, warmer waters, warmer ocean waters, uh, warmer air, more smoky skies, fire, fire smoke drifting down from the interior of Alaska and the Yukon. It just isn't as cold and wet as it used to be. And then the subtle things too that you, that you don't pick up on, but Ocean acidification is is a big one. Salmon dying at river mouth, at river mouth, salmon runs decreasing. 
yeah, it's it's frightening. It's just creepy. I'm sure. I'm sure. That's I mean, the best here, way to describe it. Here in Park City, Utah, at uh, 6,500 feet on November 1st, I'm out in short sleeves. Um, it's just um, a real change in what we would expect. Yeah, and I worry about the tipping points. I worry about the methane tipping points that we hit one of those tipping points and go over it and there's no going back. They call it a tipping point because you can't go back. And that's especially true with methane. Uh, up in Arctic Alaska, they've measured the permafrost, which is icy icy earth underneath the surface. They go down to a certain depth. And they measured it back in the late 80s, 1988. And the average permafrost temperature was 17 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And today, at those same depths around Arctic Alaska, it's at 29 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So there's going to come a time when the permafrost just goes. It's just going to go. And that's going to release a tremendous amount of methane. And methane, you know, C4, CH4, it's just a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. What what changes do you fear climate change will bring to Alaska in general and, and national parks and the state specifically? I mean, you've touched on some of them, on some of the changes you, you fear will come to Glacier Bay, um, the loss of the Tidewater glaciers and uh, the icebergs and all the wildlife that depend on them. A- anything else as you look out across the state and, and witness what is going on? Well, Alaska has more coastline than the lower 48, than the contiguous 48. It's got 34,000 miles of ocean coastline. And of the eight national parks in Alaska, four of them are, are coastal parks. Glacier Bay, Kenai Fjords, Lake Clark, and Katmai. Oh, and then a little bit of Wrangell St. Elias. The, those parks all have marine coastlines. So the first thing, all the reading, all the, excuse me, right, uh, yes, reading that I've done on climate change is the first thing that's going to go is that our oceans are going to die. They're already dying, largely from warming and uh, ocean acidification. Uh, So that's an entire subject unto itself. It's small, for example, pteropods is small shell-producing zooplankton, which is a small animal that feeds on phytoplankton, which are small plants. Those pteropods are are what sustains pink or humpback salmon, your smallest of five species of Pacific salmon. And those pteropod shells are decreasing in thickness and size. And when the pteropods can no longer produce their shells, they're they're goners. And we know this. This has happened before geologically in in an event called the the PETM, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum of 55 million years ago when we lost 40% of marine species. And happened very fast geologically then, and they believe it's happening 30 times faster now. The problem is 55 million years ago, we don't really know how fast it happened, this event. It was not an asteroid strike where all the dinosaurs died in a single day 66 million years ago. This was 11 million years ago later. It's not one of the great extinctions, but it was pretty dang bad. And it was mostly due to methane and CO2 in the atmosphere, and it killed off a lot of species in the oceans. So they're looking at ocean acidification and warming oceans today and and trying to get a handle on how bad is this going to get and how fast, but already the salmon in Alaska are dying. And then in the interior of Alaska, little 
it's starting to express itself in strange ways. Here's an example. Bird life really rely. Birds come from all over the world to Alaska to nest and raise their young every summer. They come from Asia. They come from Africa. They come from South America, from New Zealand. It's phenomenal. They fly nonstop from New Zealand to Alaska. And uh, they've been they've been banded and, and tracked. Um, so anyway, some of the waterfowl, many of the waterfowl need standing water. And these ponds up in Denali and gates of the Arctic and elsewhere, and in Glacier Bay, two parts of Glacier Bay, the permafrost, the, the ponds sit on the tundra and underneath the pond is frozen ground. It's permafrost. And as that permafrost melts now, as, the, as everything gets warmer and the permafrost melts, the ponds leak into the ground and disappear. They dry up. The ponds go away. The standing water goes away. And this is, this is going to be really hard on the bird life. Just one small example of of the many the many ways that climate change can can turn our world upside down and change change our national parks in profound ways it's 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 uh yeah it's i write for the guardian these days and a little bit for the washington post and it's it's all i write about it's it's, it's it, climate change is the one issue that as it worsens everything else will get worse. So it's a keystone issue as opposed to gun rights, as opposed to immigration, as opposed to the fiscal responsibility or the deficit or abortion or all of these issues that are so important to Americans today. Climate change is the one issue in the background for many of them. Is, is it real? Is it not? Depending on what news source they listen to. But it's the one issue that is is like this slowly creeping juggernaut coming at us that as it gets worse it will aggravate every other issue that's why it's so important and and that's why science is so important because it it allows us to see what's coming now kim in your epilogue to the new edition which came out this year you write if glacier bay has taught me anything it is the willingness to accept a little fear and uncertainty in my life in all our lives from childhood to old age. It's a long and winding road, as Paul McCartney would say, but no worthwhile journey is short, straight, or easy. We talk about how the world is changing, but what we're really talking about is how we are changing the world. It doesn't have to be. I've yet to see a man improve a tree. Are you hopeful that society as a whole will come to agree with you? Boy, this election is intense, isn't it? Um... (laughs) Do I have time for a one-minute story? Sure. I traveled on the Trans-Siberian Railway between my first and second seasons as a park ranger at Glacier Bay. So the winter of 1979-80. I worked the summer of 79 with Richard, took off, traveled across America, went to Europe, got to Istanbul, and had complete passage through Russia or the Soviet Union got on the Trans-Siberian Railway in Moscow and took a trip all the way across Russia. I was 27, 28 years old. And I met many people on board. It was fascinating. And there was a French businessman on board. And he told me the something I've never forgotten. He said, we were talking about the future of the world. And he said, let me tell you the France 1940 rule. I went, okay, tell me the France 1940 rule. He says, 
1940, you're in France. You and your family have lived there for hundreds of years. Let's say you're in a stone farmhouse 100 miles south of Paris. It's May of 1940. The Nazis are coming. There's no stopping them. They're so powerful. So what are you going to do? You have one of four choices. Number one, you can leave right away. Get out. Probably go to America. Uh, you decide not to do that. Because these Nazis, they're going to rule for a thousand years. All right. That's the way it's going to be. So you stay. So now they mow over France in three weeks. Now that now the, the Nazis are in France. Now you have three, three other choices. One, you can hunker down and abide. Hope they leave you alone and hope you have some semblance of your life prior to 1940. And good luck with that. Number two is you can join the Vichy government and cooperate with the Nazis and hope to be in good standing and and live a pretty good life. Eat good sausage now and then and have a good glass of wine now and then and and cooperate, <clears throat> knowing they're gonna be around for a thousand years. There's no getting rid of these guys. They are so powerful. It's it's just unthinkable. All of Western Europe is fascist. Churchill is speaking out. Roosevelt doesn't seem to want to get involved. So this is the way it's gonna be. Fourth is you resist. You can join the underground. You can maintain a semblance of a, of, a, of a superficial life cooperating, but you join the underground knowing that if you're caught, it's it's the end of you and probably your friends and family. And all four of those, the, the French businessman looked at me and he said, what do all four of those choices assume? And I was on the train rolling across Siberia. I said to him, we're drinking vodka. And he said, I, said, I don't know. And he said, they all assume a 1,000 year rule. And the Nazis were there for five years. So we said, don't ever underestimate what, what humanity can do when they have their backs up against the wall. Like with Nelson Mandela, I love what he wrote when he was in prison for 27 years. It always seems impossible until it is done. And he became president of a new and better South Africa. So right now I, I look around and if I were to answer you today with the final votes being counted in, in Nevada and Arizona and North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And oh my gosh, I, I'd go, I think we're in really big trouble. I, I don't know. But um, history tells me to, to not make brash judgments, right? History teaches me uh, that we can be kind of crazy and do and, 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 and lose our minds now and then, but we can also pull ourselves together and maybe even perform miracles. So I just don't know, Kurt. I'm not Nostradamus. I, uh, I, I, I like to think that we can, that we'll find a way and we'll turn this around. I don't well, know I, how. I hope, I hope you're right, Kim. Um, it's definitely a, a vital issue that we're faced with and, and how we, how we resolve it. Um, will tell a lot. I appreciate your time today, Kim. The, the book, The Only Kayak, is a, a wonderful piece, and the more recent writing you've been doing is extremely valuable and important, and I thank you for that. Thank you, Kurt. All best to you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you find these weekly podcasts interesting and informative, please donate to our current fundraising campaign. It's aligned with the nationwide Newsmatch campaign designed to raise much-needed dollars for nonprofit news organizations such as The Traveler. With your help, we can land a match of $11,500 through this campaign, but we need your donation before the end of the year. 
you can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Revencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.